We the Peace is a podcast sponsored by PAX, dedicated to helping Christian leaders bring peacemaking and justice into our organizations. We explore how peacemaking, activism, and the justice of God are central to discipleship. We publish teachings for leaders, resources for learners, and host interviews with frontline faith leaders about various topics. Our aim is to love the church, and we want to help you become the peace of Jesus wherever you are. Welcome, everyone. In this season of We the Peace, we are exploring Jesus-centered theology. We are learning that for our theology to be Jesus-centered, we must honor a global village of Bible interpreters instead of prioritizing Western theology as the way to understand and follow Jesus. When we do this, we will begin to decolonize our faith. I'm really excited about this interview with the one and only Randy Woodley. Randy is a descendant of the Cherokee tribe, speaker, farmer, activist, and author of a lot of books like Decolonizing Evangelicalism, Shalom, and The Community of Creation, which is my favorite, and a book coming out soon called Becoming Rooted, 100 Days of Reconnecting with Sacred Earth. Welcome, Randy. Thanks. Glad to be here, Josh. Well, for those who don't know who you are or maybe haven't picked up your books yet, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. I'm married. My wife and I do most of what we do together, uh, except for my professorial gig. She doesn't like to do a whole lot of talking in front of people, except for small groups and things. Uh, we do our Elahe thing together. We have been married for th- almost 32 years. We have four children. Um, we have five grandchildren and soon to be six. We've been on this long journey together. It's been rewarding. Our our home has been open, kind of hosting people, the two of us, for as long as we've been together. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been a pastor. I've been a, a, you know, I've been a tenured professor and um, I'm sort of working my way out of that right now uh, to just do the full-time gig at the Elahe. Yeah, uh, I was raised uh, by a couple Southerners in southeastern Michigan, um, born in Alabama. Uh, my parents moved up to Michigan for the Great Migration and worked at, uh, for the automobile companies and uh, working, sort of working poor families uh, in a very multi-ethnic, multicultural, multiracial uh, environment. Scooted yeah. around a little bit. I always sort of had my hand in a lot of different things because I like doing a lot of different things. And I like, uh, especially like uh, lots of experimenting and, and being exposed to a lot of different cultures. And, uh, you know, surprised my first book was really about embracing, living in color, embracing God's passion for ethnic diversity, right? So, you know, it's been a good trip. I've been involved in a lot of different stuff serving our native community, but also um, uh, non-natives as well. But uh, a lot of our time has been spent uh, serving in different ways, you know, everything from houseless stuff to um, teenage moms to after-school programs uh, for kids to justice groups, grassroots organizing. You know, we've taken on cities and towns and uh, institutions and counties and major employers and taking on jail systems and taking on police unfair hiring and institutional yeah. unfair hiring and 
So we just kind of been causing what John Lewis calls good trouble along the way. And, yeah. uh, and then I get a chance to write about stuff like that every now and then and talk about it. And that's a little bit about me. It's great. I love farming. We're, we are planters or earth tenders here on this, uh, 10 acres and on the coastal mountain range of, uh, Oregon. And we're just in the foothills and it's a beautiful place, incredible sunsets and sunrises. And, and, uh, we've made a lot of progress in the last 18 months since we've been here. So that's fun. Well, thanks for sharing. Tell us a little bit about your theological journey. When and how did you come to faith in Jesus and how has that changed over the years? We'd love to hear. My parents, by the time I can recall, they were both, Christians and both assimilated uh, mixed blood Cherokees, uh, white and Cherokee. I think I was 10 years old, maybe. Yeah, 10 years old. I went to a church camp for the first time in uh, in Western Michigan called Camp Cascatoa. And uh, it's the only time I ever went to a church camp. And I, I wasn't really very active. I didn't like the church kids. Uh, <laughs> so, um, but uh, during that time, there was a uh, a full-blooded Ojibwe guy who was one of the camp counselors. Um, I don't even know his name. It's, they called him Cream Puff. But uh, uh, so I, I was, uh, my parents, they hung out with all these families who were mixed blood natives and they would get together and talk and play music together and do yeah. you know stories. And, and they would always talk about, you know, my, my grandmother, she spoke, uh, you know, Shawnee or Cherokee or Creek or, you know, they're all from these different uh places in the South and all mixed bloods. And, and I decided at some young age, I don't know what age that was, but way back when that, you know, like, uh, so we're, we're quote unquote part Indian. Right. So I'm like, you know, I don't want to be like part Indian, you know, I want to actually be Indian. Right. Yeah. So, so that was this uh, sort of identity quest when I was growing up. And so when I was, uh, I think 10 or so, um, and I went to this camp and this, there's full blood dude, right. That I was exposed to. And I was just enamored with uh, him. And he taught me how to paddle a canoe and dig up uh, sassafras root and a whole bunch of cool, you know, to my mind, real Indian stuff. Right. Yeah. So, uh, so anyway, he, at the end of the thing, uh, asked me if I wanted to, to ask Jesus in my heart. And so I said, yeah. And uh, so that's kind of how this, um, this uh, personal relationship got started with creator. And, uh, and then I think by the time I was a teenager, it just kind of all was out. Right. And, and uh, I, I went the hard way. And then when I was 19, I was uh, hooked on meth and, um, you know, just kind of living a very crazy life. A lot of people around me had died. I'd almost died several times. And, and at 19 at an old fashioned Baptist revival meeting, you know, uh, I came back to Jesus. My thing was, if you can get me off these drugs, because I've been trying for over a year to get off this meth, then, uh, you know, I'll serve you the rest of my life and I won't ever look back. And and all of a sudden, and this is very, um, you know, I, I realize it doesn't happen with everybody this way or anything, but uh, but for me, this is what happened. All of a sudden, I feel like I got kicked by a horse mm. and I found myself on the ground and and I, I kind of woke up and got up from there and I never had a desire to do drugs again. And so I figured at that point I'm on the Jesus path. Right. So, uh, so what does that mean? <laughs> so yeah. I didn't have a lot of good instruction. Um, like I was really into uh, the, I was 19 years old. That was actually October 
1975. So, you know, I was like a, a like a wannabe AIM, American Indian Movement guy, and I was getting the Aquasasti notes, the underground Indian newspaper, and, and uh, you know, I had all these posters up, and, and basically what they told me is like, like all that's the flesh, right? So uh, you need to get rid of all that stuff, cut your hair, uh, and uh, and just kind of, you know, like, like follow Jesus. In other words, like we're following Jesus would be like us. Right. And everybody there was either white or assimilated. Right. Okay. So, um, so that didn't feel right. Um, and especially when I started reading like the book of Acts and I'm like, Oh, this is what the church is supposed to be, but, but it's not. Yeah. And, uh, and so I think reading the book of Acts was my first step toward decolonization. <laughs> I yeah. was like, something wrong with the story here. I don't know what it is. And so that was always this thing. So I went on a, a search for, you know, genuine Christian community. And then I, I got the into my own identity issues as a, 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 a Cherokee descendant. And I was a, a Kutua. And I was like, you know, it's, there's some things that aren't right here and I can't figure out what they are and it doesn't seem to fit me right. And so I worked through some of that and eventually sort of started uh, shedding a lot of the expectations. And then it, there came a point maybe about 12, 13 years ago, maybe where my wife and I just kind of figured out, well, we're not really Christians. You know, Christianity is like brought the bad news, right? And, and done all the bad stuff to our people. We didn't ever sort of do well anyway with like things like uh, words like narthex or, uh, you know, Lenten season and stations of the cross and all the, it was kind of like, I don't know, it just like everybody got into that stuff and we were like, we're, we're not like that. What are, what are we? And as, as we continue to move deeper and deeper into our, and, and learn more of our own indigenous um uh, world and practices and and uh, we we saw that there was absolutely no no real dissonance between uh, what Jesus taught in fact Jesus was more like an indigenous person right and uh and the values and everything and and I sort of went full blown into that with my doctoral dissertation which was about um uh understanding the harmony way construct among our different tribes and and how it related to the big idea of shalom and the gospel is actually about Jesus shalom teaching and everything else is sort of a sidebar to that. And so he was, he's come to bring shalom and that means both personally and structurally. So I sometimes talk about shalom as structured love. Mm -hmm. So all the safety nets, all of those kinds of things are part of what I call the uh, shalom Sabbath Jubilee construct, which, which all uh, basically come down to, are we treating each other in society uh, the way that we want to be treated. I mean, that's the bottom line. And, and, and then what do we have to do to change it? And so I've spent a lot of my life changing things that appear to be okay or good, um, but are actually destructive. So, um, and that's a lot of that's been my message to the church as well. And so, so we, we just figured out we're like native traditionalists who are following Jesus and there's not a conflict there, but we we're not Christians anymore because Christianity just never fit us. Thanks for sharing that. What were some of the turning points for you? You mentioned that early on uh, you were being taught to set aside uh, native expressions 
uh, for Western expressions of following Jesus, which ironically, Westerners don't do that with their own culture. That's the standard. Exactly. That's the normal. That's the terrible irony of what happens with a colonial Christianity, right? What, what were some of the turning points for you? You mentioned the book of Acts because so many people right now are catching on to the language of decolonization and there's still so much confusion around what that means, what it doesn't mean. So I'd love to hear from you and your process through your 20s and 30s and your dissertation. Was it reading the text of scripture? Was it Jesus himself? Was it a few experiences of seeing other natives like express their faith in a way that was genuine? Uh, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, a couple things. Um, I was a, a missionary. Um, I'm ordained with the American Baptist, and I was a missionary with the American Baptist to Alaska at a, a Native children's home. Okay. And uh, I call those two years my missionary oppressor years. And that was like 84 to 86, 1984 to 1986. And we had this like program that we had to go by, like a behavior modification program. And I I just, I saw it violating every sense of culture that uh, was good in these uh, uh, teenagers' lives. And I had a real struggle with that. I was like, you know, like I knew that my ancestors had been robbed of all that. Um, and so I was like, you know, I'm, I'm the oppressor here. And so when I left Alaska and I struggled with it and I tried to sort of like live two different lives, right. One with the kids and one, you know, sort of to the, uh, institution and that causes a lot of mental strain, but emotional. So I left there and I, that's when I went to do my master of divinity, uh, at, uh, what was in Eastern Baptist, but now it's uh, called, uh, Palmer seminary. And I said, I'll never oppress my people again. Mm -hmm. I don't. So I've got to find out a way to be able to uh, walk with Jesus and share Jesus without it being oppressive. And so that was my goal from that point on. That was 1986. And I I got that, uh, that opportunity when I was doing my master divinity. And I got the journals of this uh, missionary, American Baptist missionary and his Cherokee coworker. So that was uh, Evan Jones and Jesse Bushyhead. And, um, you know, they sort of like, this is in like from 1821 to 1871. And he lived this double life also. And because there were 12 boxes of his original journals and letters, I was able in two years to read through that whole thing. I think wow. there's only one other person that's done that. And uh, he wrote a book about him. And uh, I, he wrote the book before I got to write the book. I still may write that at some point, but, but uh, very trusted. And, you know, after about 10 years of being a missionary among the Cherokees, Jones started going, you know, uh, I think this sounds weird now, but, you know, back then, uh, I think that they are worshiping the same God we are. <laughs> and yeah. It's like, really? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So then he had to sort of live this double life to the denomination and to the people and I watched that, you know, and it sort of gave me a pattern. And then uh, I went to uh, Anadarko, Oklahoma, as a sort of a, like a, a, I was coordinator of the Oklahoma Indian American Baptist Churches. That was 10 Native churches and uh, executive director of the Anadarko Christian Center, which was this uh, building in the bad neighborhoods. And 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 so we started coming up with, and, and then also, I should say one more thing. Yeah. I, I was really given a wonderful education during my master divinity time. I really, my, my question was like, I was, I was a flaming evangelist before. Right. Yeah. I mean, just doing it all right. And all the notches on my belt and all that kind of stuff. But I knew that there was something really missing. And so I, I had no sort of 
idea about social conscience and social action. And I knew there was something wrong with the way I was doing things. And so I had some great people like uh, Ron Sider and Tony Campolo and uh, Samuel Escobar and Manfred Brauch and others who were really just filled that gap in. And I think understanding the social context of the New Testament uh, was also the New Testament backgrounds was very helpful. Mm. Um, so there's this idea of cultural contextualization at the time is what we're calling it. Right. And uh, so I, I, I did, I hit the ground with my feet running and I found a group of elders who sort of supported me and I became sort of like the catalyst for change in uh, Western Oklahoma there among the different, some of the different tribes among the, the churches and about half the churches loved what I was doing and about half of them hated me. And, uh, so I was persecuted and, you know, on and on. But, uh, yeah. Uh, one of the things that happened in Oklahoma that also changed it was that I had a dream and in the dream, a uh, messenger came to me and said, um, cause I was already, um, uh, like attending sweat lodges, which is one of our ceremonies. And, um, with traditional people, but, but there's no such thing as like people in the church who had that. And so yeah. in the dream, I was told yeah. to, to lead a Jesus sweat. And so I went to the traditional people, got permission, was given um, instructions, uh, taught how to run a, a sweat for Jesus. And so I, as far as I know, I'm the first person to start running a Jesus sweat. So, um, and, you know, I've been doing that for like 30 over 30 years now. And we always build our community around our sweat lodge. And to most people, the sweat lodge is their church who come, you know, not able to do it right now during COVID, but um, because that's kind of like a Petri dish, right? The yeah. Sweat lodge. <laughs> but yeah. And, and it just between, I think sweat was a big uh, revelation for me. Like this is given by God and this is good. And, and I don't need to find a Bible verse to support it. You know, yeah. that kind of a thing. Uh, which is sort of where contextualization takes you. It's uh, like, you know, well, is it in scripture? No, it's it's just the, the more and more I studied, the more and more I became aware of uh, what was going on culturally. And then just the the bottom line of the, the pervading normalization of whiteness is white supremacy in America. Yeah. And that's wrong. That's anti-Christ. And so uh, I have an obligation as a follower of Jesus to come against that wherever I see it. From your perspective and your life story is really an example and an embodied story of the dangers of conceiving Christianity strictly from a white Western lens. Help unpack for us the dangers of that, of viewing Christianity through a white lens. Okay, that's a sort of a loaded question because um, here's the deal. White theologians and white normalization are probably the least qualified people to understand Jesus and the Gospels. All right. So uh, I'm, I'm glad you don't look surprised. So uh, if you think about Scripture as, you know, Jesus is pre-Enlightenment, pre-Renaissance, uh, all the effects of Platonic dualism and the Western worldview that has developed that are part of who we are now. And, and so he is very much sort of like he's just tribal dude, right? Um, he was born in a small town, and he understood story, as did all the writers of Scripture, which is 90% story. 
by the way. And so if you don't understand story and the purpose of story, then you don't even know what you don't understand, right? Wow. Because you're going to take that story and you're going to chop it all to pieces and you're going to look at the chapters and verses and all the things that weren't there when the story was told, right? And you're going to fit it into your theology of a Western worldview. So non-Western people probably have a lot of advantage in understanding what story is, Mm. therefore understanding what Jesus was all about, therefore understanding what the gospel is. And so we've created a false gospel that we think the good news is a bunch of propositions. You know, do you believe this, 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 and this? Okay, Christian, you know, you got it. You're saved. That has nothing to do with the gospel. That's a, a, a foreign interpretation and a, a misalignment of Western worldview with who Jesus was and what Jesus was all about. So that's why it's important. The, the danger of understanding it from a Western worldview without a whole lot of other people, and I'm not saying they got everything wrong, right? Yeah. But is that you miss who Jesus is and you miss the gospel and you miss salvation or what I just call healing, which is a better word for salvation. Mm. You miss being healed by both the spirit of Jesus and the word that Jesus brings and the story that Jesus brings into our lives. If if you're understanding it from a Western perspective. Yeah, that's powerful to hear. There's been times where I've come to the realization, a friend of mine called it barcode theology or barcode salvation that we're going to get scanned. And as long as you believe the right things, you somehow enter the kingdom and how off that is. And, you know, I notice about my people, Anglo-Saxon descent, it's so hard to understand an Eastern perspective and worldview, even when you read the Bible, because you have such a strong dominant lens that you're interpreting all of scripture through. So we're translating Jesus through whiteness, through uh, Anglo-Saxon bias, and we all do that, but that has been especially pronounced in the colonial era. We're talking about a huge system that thrives off of doing that. And one thing that I've learned, you know, there's certain parts of my life where I'm like, I feel like, oh yeah, I get culture, I understand it. And that that is actually the most dangerous I've ever been, is when I've been exposed enough to culture because I've taken some classes, I've traveled to do some missions work, so I actually think I'm cultured. I've done some of my biggest damage relationally among friends when I finally think I do that. It's it's like, okay, I watched this cooking show about the Philippines, so I get it. I get the Philippines. And what what I've <laughs> what I've learned, and I'd love to hear from your perspective, it's only really come through authentic relationships with people who are considered other, considered different, that actually come from a closer worldview to Judaism, to the first century, to Christ, for me to get, oh, wow, I really am so heavy handed in my interpretation. But because I have 10 commentaries on Romans, I think I got it. Think about this. So all the things that come from uh, the early Greeks, you know, Platonic dualism, hierarchy, extreme categorization, or I call false categorization, race-based superiority, which is part of the hierarchy. Yeah. You know, all of these sort of things are ubiquitous in our own culture right now, Western culture, uh, just like white supremacy. You know, this whole culture battle is about white supremacy. That's, that's what's going on. It can be boiled down to that. And so all of those things are 
when you have a Western worldview and you don't critique it and challenge it, those are the lenses that you're using to interpret this pre-colonial Jesus or yeah. decolonial Jesus, if you will. Okay, yeah. so that that leads me to one of the books that you've written. You wrote an amazing book, and it's very conversational. So for those of you who are listening who are not as interested in something that's going to be super academic, a book called Decolonizing Evangelicalism. It's very unique in that it's conversational theology. In it, you write, quote, you might assume Jesus would have been affected by this powerful empire, Rome, that was constantly bearing down on Jesus, but instead he displayed a remarkably decolonized mind. And I I think it's very interesting. I still believe like we live in a colonial era where we're still suffering from that, especially in North America. And, And as we're struggling with that, we're looking back and saying, how does Jesus speak to colonization? So from your perspective, in what sense was Jesus decolonial? So, yeah, I think, I think Jesus is actually a great, you know, we look at Gandhi and folks like that, and that's, that's great. I look to Gandhi, I look to, uh, you know, others, uh, heroes, but, but Jesus is actually somebody I think I look up to as a, a decolonial figure. You know, if you think about, uh, you know, the, all the circumstances of all the stories and his birth and his, you know, all, all the different things that, you know, he was sort of born in the place of the people, Right not high up, but born in the place of the people. And so, um, but even still, uh, and so, so, you know, there was this power over him right away. Uh, but even still, who does he hang out with? He hangs out with the people who are different than him. Mm. People who are in, in this in quotes, quote unquote, lower status than him. Why? He learns from them. He listens to them. He learns about the differences between his experience and theirs. And so I think this setting around at the table is one of the sort of significant things that tell me Jesus Jesus was all about um, learning from people who are different than him. And that's a key part of decolonization is learning. And you talked about it a while ago, learning from people who are different than you, who see the world through different eyes. And so there was that. And then there was his constant coming up against the power structures, the church power structure. And then as it progressed, which is sort of how it went with me as well, as I came up against a lot of the church power structures, and then finally the community power structures. Mm. But, um, uh, mm. but he was taking them on. And he would say, no, you say this, but this, you know, but that's not how it is. And then he would question them. You know, I love how he always answers the questions with questions so many times. Um, but yeah, and and in so many of the stories, there's this, this hearkening back to this idea of the ancient Shalom system, the Shalom Sabbath Jubilee system, which he embodied, right? He says in, in Luke chapter four, like, this is the day, this is what's happening. I'm the one that we're talking about here. Um, and so, uh, and, and so he's, the system is always looking out for the poor and the marginalized, the, the widow, the orphan, the foreigner, the immigrant, you know? And so, um, and that's where he concentrated his life and he spoke up for them and he healed them. And so his approach was not to cater to power, but to challenge inauthentic power. And so that's why I think Jesus was a great example of decolonialism. How would you define or explain colonialism? 
love to hear. So I think colonialism is um, like if I could boil it down to one thing, it would be stripping yourselves of the myths that you've been told that are lies and finding out the truth about those lies. Uh, that's that's sort of the process, right? So um, so the myths that Jesus stripped down, things like, you know, you're, you're interested in these figures from the Old Testament, but let me tell you, you know, Luke 4, God sent Elijah yeah. to, uh, you know, um, the widow, but there weren't other, you know, he didn't send, you know, someone, Elijah, to some of the widows in Israel at the time. And Naaman, the Syrian, the occupier, the oppressor, you know, and so when he lifted those people up, he, what he was saying was, you misinterpret what God is up to, which means you misinterpret who God is, mm. which is actually one of the, I think, the gravest mistakes or sins, if you wish, um, that you can do in the end of the very end of the book of Job. Why is Job going to smash, uh, as the story goes, going to smash uh, the uh, God's going to smash Job's friends, right? Because you misrepresented who I am. Yeah. And if there's any sin of the white missionaries and the white church in America, it's that they misrepresented who Jesus is to the people. Mm. In this season, we're talking about it, basically making the claim that a Jesus-centered theology equals a global theology. You can't look at the image of God on earth who lived in diversity, who lived with inclusion, whose tables practices brought people in, who went to Samaria, who healed enemies, and not think globally and be globally when Jesus created this beautiful global movement. And, and so we're asking specific questions from contributors that I'm interviewing about what is their people's theological contribution. So I'd love to hear what you think are the major theological contributions of Native Americans. Let me say a couple things about that and, and remind me if I lose track of that question, I want to answer that too. But okay. so Jesus, uh, I was taught, oh, Jesus was for the Jews. And then, you know, Paul was for the Gentiles, Paul and Peter, you know, mm. that's not the way the story reads at all. Jesus is about all people uh, being concerned about all people marveling at the faith of Gentiles, you know, all of this kind of stuff. And it just takes the church a while to, to get this right. Um, and so, um, so, so immediately, Jesus is a global figure, if you will, to his own context. Indigenous people all around the world are different, um, but we have a lot of the similar values. People who live with the earth, because the earth is our teacher, the longest and deepest teacher we probably will ever have, and creator designed it that way, of course. And so indigenous people are closer to the earth than people who have, uh, you know, been sucked into modernity and and away from that indigenous worldview. And so those values that are shared, and I have friends who are Sami and uh, Maori and Aboriginal and uh, Zulu and Maasai and, you know, uh, uh, Native uh, Filipino and uh, Ikalahan and others, you know, around the world who who have similar values and have a similar, similar harmony way structure, if mm. you will, or construct. And um, I believe these are the original instructions. And I believe these are the original instructions and values that Jesus is bringing back. And so indigenous people are the, are basically still holding on to a lot of those. We're not perfect. We don't have a utopian society. We don't have all the answers. 
But indigenous people are still holding on to those original instructions of how to treat the earth, how to treat the community of creation, how to treat one another. So in, in a sense, and I'm going to use a really, some people are going to hate this statement, but in a sense, indigenous people are basically the harbingers of salvation for the world, if you will, or healing for the world. It's a better word than salvation. Salvation's got, it's just got too much baggage with it now. Yeah. So for the world to heal, for the earth to heal, we have to learn from our indigenous people around the world and begin to listen to what those original instructions are. So one of the claims of this season I'd love to get your feedback on is we should be looking at theology on an equal plane. And maybe what you just said contradicts a claim of this season, but that is to say, uh, certainly from the colonial era forward, and most certainly in North America, you have Western theology, Reformed theology, both progressive and conservative, that's above all these other theologies and the claim is, well, Western theology is local theology too. It's just Swedish or German or whatever. And it needs to be lowered to be on an equal playing field with other local theologies and theological expressions across the world. And that's what it means to adopt a, a global theology. Is that something you would agree with or no? No. I, I, first of all, I don't think those Western theologians and theologies are local. Interesting. Those are not local because they come from the earth and from the tribe and the indigenous people. They are part of the Western theological project, which is the Germans talking to the British, talking to the Americans, talking to whoever, you know, and the theological constructs and categories are already set. Yeah. So they're just theologizing out of that Western worldview. And so the boxes are already laid out, right? to which they theologize. And some people get outside the edges a little bit, you know, but, but basically indigenous theology, uh, which is some, sometimes really an oxymoron because you slide into the Western categories right away. As soon as you start theologizing this right. indigenous person, it's dangerous, but indigenous theology says, you know, I don't need those boxes. Yeah. Those are not my boxes. When I talk about creator, I don't need those boxes. I, I, I talk about creator in a different way. And so it's a it's a different playing field, if you will. Interesting. Yeah, I'm excited to explore that further with you and 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 learn what is meant by that. How do you develop a global theological perspective? And I agree that even when we say the word theology, that's kind of stacking the deck. But how how do you develop a global perspective on Jesus? So I don't know if you you can uh, if you if you're doing it right. I think place is very important when it comes to understanding uh, anything, yeah. especially theological constructs and past relationship with creator. And how does that work with Jesus? And so place has to take into account ancient stories, mm. practices, people's songs, ceremonies, all of those kinds of things go into a theology of a place. And uh, so where does Jesus fit in? Well, in, in my particular understanding, Jesus is creator, as the Bible points out. But but Western theology doesn't really have a place for Jesus as creator. Yeah. Um, that's, I think, because, because of the the uh, cognitive dissonance it creates, right? It's like this. And that's part of the, the Western problem, too, is to not be able to hold two things that are just dissimilar in tension. Mm. You know, it's like, no, we got to resolve that. He's either this or this, right? Yep. So, um, I, and I don't know that we need 
a global theology of Jesus. Yeah. I, I think yeah. maybe that works against the whole project of indigenizing. Yeah. So my, what we maybe need is more local theologies of Jesus. Got it. Yeah. So the solution isn't, isn't as much to think global. It's to think local about your theology and local about expressing the way of Jesus from your social location, where you're at connecting to the stories of your people connecting to uh, the cultural expressions that we should look back on and reflect on how these can be ways to follow Jesus. Correct. Yeah. Because, you know, Western folks um, don't even realize there's a place, right? Yeah. Because, um, you know, they don't even realize there's a people who have had this long relationship with creator in a place Yeah. and they just sort of move. And it's like, okay, I can say the same thing in Orlando and, or I could move to Detroit or I could move to, you know, Springfield, Missouri or wherever it is. And it doesn't matter because it's been universalized. It's been globalized. Yeah. And so Vine Deloria Jr. pointed this out and God has read a long time ago that the, the, one of the projects of the, the, the Western mind is to universalize things like place. Yeah. And so when you do that, you disconnect from everything that God has done there in the past when you universalize place. And so if, if place is going to be uh, important in which I uh, like, you know, Walter Brueggemann says land is the most important theme in scripture yeah. or the most prominent theme in scripture, I think, then, uh, then, then you have to actually create it. Now here's the problem. It's the hubris involved in the Western project. It's like, well, if we start with land, like indigenous people do, then we start from a place of being under them because we stole the land. And now also they're the experts and we're not. So it's very simply often just a matter of pride. It's like, like, well, we don't want to theologize with them because all of a sudden we're in a bad position and that doesn't bode well for white supremacy. And so if I'm understanding you correctly, it's not about creating an equal theological playing field. It is about recognizing that the indigenous worldview is a separate playing field with different rules that the Western mind, Western theology should be submitting to and learning from moving forward. Well, let's look at where the West has gotten us. Constant wars, uh, world wars, uh, you know, uh, our planet is, you know, we don't know if the human uh, race is going to actually survive because of what the Western worldview has done to the planet, yeah. people oppressed and enslaved and genocide and all the rest. So while no culture is perfect, there are some, some very identifiable uh, aspects of the Western worldview that can be identified and say, these are what's called, caused such mass destruction. And so, no, no, I, I don't think so. I think, yeah. I think it's time for the West to become junior partners. It's good. I believe that we have to heal together. Mm. But the West need to become, especially the theologians, they need to be junior partners to the indigenous peoples of the world and, and, and what we would call, quote unquote, the cultural other. releasing a book soon. You're releasing a bunch of books soon, but we're going to talk about one that is deeply practical and very devotional. As I've looked it over the past day, it's called Becoming Rooted 100 Days of Reconnecting with Sacred Earth. Tell us a little bit about this book project. So I'm really excited about this book. I 
I, I hope this becomes my seminal work, as they say. Um, and, and it's not just written toward a Christian audience. It's written for anybody who's interested in spirituality and connecting more with the earth. And um, my sort of MO is to, you know, I'm, I'm a little more uh, patient and loving, I think, than I have been in my younger days. But my, my MO is basically kind of like we just did here to come at things head on. Right. Mm. But I realize that doesn't uh, that only gets us partway there and it doesn't work for some people. And so I wanted to write something uh, both to share my own uh, rich relationship with creator and the earth and the whole community of creation, and also to remind people of theirs um, that, that they have this rich relationship. And, and sometimes they're in which basically I call uh, it's reminding them of their own epigenetics that they were once indigenous themselves. Mm -hmm. Right. So when you see that hummingbird or when you see the rainbow or where you see the, the bee on the flower or the flower opening or, you know, it's, it reminds you like, wow, there's something about this. It's like, you know, people go out in nature, they go on a hike and they say, I felt so close to God. Well, of course, that's the way it was meant to be, but we've created it as something not natural. And so what I wanted to do was to, to write from, from my own perspective, which I hope from the elders I've learned from and, and, and the things I've learned in my life is a bona fide indigenous perspective. But, you know, I don't speak for anybody but myself, but I wanted to, to be able to take people on a hundred day journey with me thinking about these things, somewhat educating, but mostly inspiring and then each one has an action point at the end of the reflection. They're just like bite-sized chunks, right? Yeah. A page, page and a half, uh, and then a small page. <laughs> and uh, and then a, a sort of an action point, something to reflect on or to actually go out and do to break up that platonic dualism, right? It's like, you know, don't just know it in your head, but you can actually experience something. And so um, and I, I just think if people could do 100 days of that or even use that as a like a devotional and do it every so often or whatever, that it might begin to change their worldviews and to have a more indigenous worldview because the Western worldview is not going to sustain our future. And so I'm trying to do everything I can to help us uh, sustain our grandchildren and great grandchildren and great, great grandchildren. And so um, this is, it was, I gotta be honest, it was a lot of work. Yeah. It was a lot of work recounting all the stories and, and I got to like 60 and then I was out, I was done. And I was like, Oh, why didn't we call this 60, 60 days, you know? Yeah. And then my wife started reminding me, well, did you, did you talk about this? Did you remember your experience with this? Did you, and I'm like, Oh yeah, all of a sudden hundred, <laughs> but it was a lot of work, but, but it's going to be a joy to go through it. Yeah. yeah. So it's, we wanted something that's actually going to affect people's lives. Right. Yeah. Not just give them something to read. That's awesome. I'd encourage you. Uh, who are listening to pick up that book. It's called Becoming Rooted, 100 Days of Reconnecting with Sacred Earth. Brother Randy, last question for you that I ask everybody, what is key to peace in the 21st century? Peace is not just the absence of war. Peace is learning how to live without that warring spirit, without the competition, with more cooperation, uh, to live in, uh, if you're a biblical person, to live in shalom, if you're a native person to live in harmony, you know, basically, uh, how do we live well together? And it can't just come from our personal lives. Mm -hmm. It has to also change the structures that we have so that there's equity, so that everybody has the opportunity to live well. 
And we do that by changing our laws, by creating more safety nets, by electing officials who are about cooperation and and about, you know, I don't want to use this word tritely, but this really is a powerful word, love. Yeah. So how do we love our neighbor in the same way we love ourselves? We do that both personally, through hospitality, um, through gatherings, and we do in our actions, but we do that also by restructuring uh, unjust laws and unjust systems. And then we will have peace and we need to do it quickly. Yeah. Well, thank you, Randy, for being with us. Uh, where can people find you as we leave off? Yeah, so a lot of places. So um, Bo Sanders, the co-author of Decolonizing Evangelicalism and I, we have a, uh, a podcast called Piecing It All Together, P-E-A-C-I-N-G. So there's that. I have Facebook pages, my own personal, Randy Woodley 7, and then the one for um, the my author writing and book projects like the one you mentioned called Randy Woodley Author Speaker. Our uh, website for our organization, Alahey Indigenous Center for Earth Justice, is alahey.org. Alahey is E-L-O-H-E-H.org. And then there's randywoodley.com. Uh, and if you go to randywoodley.com, you can find a place to, to pre-order the book uh, in any number of venues or whatever your favorite bookseller is. So. Awesome. So, so that's it. Well, thank you so much for being with us. All right. Thanks, Josh. Thank you for listening to this podcast, We the Peace. You can find more resources at madeforpax.org and you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at PAX. This is We the Peace.